Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryan over there. And uh, this is Stuff You Should Know. Just the two of us, me and Chuck are going to make it if we try. Just the two of us, he and I. Oh, man. Now I wish we were doing a show on Bill Withers. Is that a Bill Withers song? What? I mean, I, I, I guess I can hear his voice now that you say that, but <laughs> that's not the song I think of when I think Bill Withers, you know? Uh, what do you think on Lean On Me? No, the theme song to Annie. Oh, sure. Sun will come out tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's the one, right? Good song. I love that Annie soundtrack. <sighs> it's so good, man. Hey, have, have I mentioned Enola Holmes? Uh, you have. Well, have Two you days seen ago. it yet? <laughs> I haven't seen it yet. It's so good, dude. Did you see the Challenger documentary? Uh, I have not seen that. And that is hard to watch. Yeah, I've been watching uh, horror <clears throat> movies because this yeah. October is kind of the month where I get a pass to do that on my own. Yeah, October, more like Shocktober, you know what I mean? Right. Uh, I finally watched the, a Rob Zombie movie. Never seen any of those before. Which one? Uh, I started at the beginning and did House of a Thousand Corpses. Okay. What did you think? It was good. It was just exactly what I thought it would be, which is uh, sort of a Texas Chainsaw Massacre-like mm-hmm. story. Mm-hmm. But well, you could you could feel his enthusiasm for filmmaking. I liked it. For sure. Um, when's the last time you saw the, the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre? I saw it last year for the very first time, believe it or not. Oh, my. I think we talked about that finally. Yeah, it yeah. scared the pants off of me. Man, it's so good. It's weird because it keeps getting better. I remember really being a great. teenager, and the first time I saw it, and I was like, "Why? what is this? And then the next time I saw it, I was like, oh, this is actually pretty good. And then the last time I saw it, I was like, I just want to sit around and watch this all the time. Stone Cold Classic. So speaking of Stone Cold Classics, I got a Stone Cold Classic, which a what? True crime <laughs> question case for you, Chuck. What's the question? The question is this. Was Patty Hearst a brainwashed hostage who -hmm. carried out violent crimes for fear of her life? Or was she a spoiled rich kid who was basically, who turned thrill seeker to the nth degree? You know what? I don't know. I mean, uh, part of me thinks that she uh, did flip and was radicalized. Mm -hmm. But I don't know, man. I mean, I don't think it's super clear either way. No. What do you think? I'm in the same boat as you. I feel like I lean a little more toward radicalized, and there's a couple of things that it's just like, I can't get past that. Yeah, I think I know one of them. But I think... I think that she became radicalized initially out of fear for her life. Um, and it's yeah. really hard to discount what happened to her initially, you sure. know, that got yeah, her in absolutely. That. And I think Jimmy Carter has the most sensible take on the whole thing. So we'll get into all this. For those of you who don't know what we're talking about, we're talking about Patty Hearst. And Patty Hearst was the granddaughter of William Randolph Hearst, whose name might sound familiar. Um, he was the publishing magnate, I think a radio guy too, right? 
Uh, I think it was, yeah, radio, but, you know, very much well-known for his newspaper, uh, mm-hmm. his string of newspapers. And um, he was a bit of a politico, a kingmaker, incredibly mind-bogglingly wealthy. He was the model for Citizen Kane, I believe, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he uh, had basically established this media empire um, in the first half of the 20th century. And he had a son. He had a son named Randy Hurst. <laughs> no joke. <laughs> Randall Hurst. Not William uh-huh. Randolph Hearst, sorry, Randolph Hearst. <laughs> and they called him Randy. And Randy had a daughter. He was brought up like a, a very wealthy guy, but um, he was also brought up to, to take over the family business. And he had by 1954, I think, when a daughter arrived to Randy and his wife, um, Catherine. And they named their kid Patty or Patricia Hearst. That's right, Patricia Campbell. And uh, she was... What you would think. She was born into an heiress. She was born a rich kid. Uh, it's funny to think about, like, in today's terms, um, plenty of people to pick from. But, like, if you could imagine Paris Hilton uh, robbing a bank with a machine gun. Right. That's that's kind of a good analog to who Patricia Hearst was back then. Yeah, that's that's actually really good. Although, you, you, you could say she's... Um, <laughs> Quite a, quite a bit more low-key, or she was at the time. Like, by the time she was 19, she was living in San Francisco, or the Bay Area, I should say, attending UC Berkeley. So, I guess she was living in Berkeley, because that's not necessarily yeah, I mean, the Bay Area. Yeah, she wasn't exactly Paris Hilton, right? <laughs> if, we're, if we're being honest. But she was just but, like— But as far as the famous heiress right. in the United States. Yeah. So, yes. And, uh, yeah. But also living this quiet life. She was 19. She was engaged to a guy named Stephen Weed. <laughs> um, who was like a Catholic high school teacher, I think. He was 26 or something, and um, studying art history and going to school and just kind of living life, you know? But yeah, she he really was, missed his calling. <laughs> she Right. <laughs> Especially in Berkeley in the 70s, yeah, no. you know? Stevie Weed. <laughs> so, um, she, she, but she was like mind-bogglingly wealthy, and she was going to inherit all this, and she was famous for being an heiress, Right. And so, just a few days before her 20th birthday, on February 4th, I think, right? 1974? Mm -hmm. There was a knock on her door at like 9 p.m. It was a Monday night. And actually, I don't even know if they knocked or else if they just came bursting in. But um, three people uh, who turned out to be members of what uh, very few people had heard of at the time, but who had become very famous, the Symbionese Liberation Army, um, burst through their door beat up Stephen Weed, Catholic high mm. school uh, teacher, and um, dragged Patty Hearst out of her apartment to their car where they shot off a few shots and drove off into the night with Patty Hearst kidnapped as hostage. Yeah, they threw her in the trunk, mm. bound, and she was gone. And uh, as far as the SLA goes, like you said, they were not very well known at the time. They were pretty new um, in an era of sort of, I'm not going to say there were just uh, American terrorist uh, organizations all over the place in the United States, but it was a time in our country where there were a lot of bombings. A lot. and Yeah, it said about a thousand a year. That's a uh, lot. And, yeah, that's a lot of, compared to now, yeah. where we don't have a lot of bombings. Uh, and we should thank Julia Layton for helping us put this together. Mm-hmm. 
But um, no one had heard of them much because, like I said, they were new. They formed a couple of months before her abduction. And it wasn't like there were, you know, a hundred of these people. There were, no. you know, it kind of varied from, you know, depending on, like, I guess, who had the, the good drugs at the time. <clears throat> but there were never more than a dozen. Um, it seems like it varied between, like, seven and 12 right. uh, at a time. And their their ideology was basically just, like, anti-capitalist – um, we, that's kind of just it. It, it wasn't super right. inspiring. Right. It wasn't well thought out. It was just, Hey, we hate, we hate the rich. It was pretty ho-hum. Um, and, and yeah, not very inspiring. And I think that's why they never had that many members, but they were, they were extremely militant. They were very paranoid and they were willing to carry out violence. Like they didn't have totally. many qualms with violence. They used to practice with uh, weapons and guns and um, they had a lot of guns, a lot of ammunition. They knew how to make bombs. They weren't messing around in that sense. They were just kind of dullards when it came to political ideology. They were just following in, in everybody else's wake. But um, I, interestingly enough, Chuck, the whole the whole Symbionese uh, Liberation Army started out of a prison tutoring program where a bunch of white students from Berkeley went and tutored inmates on things like black history and poli- uh, political science, things like that. Um, and that's where the SLA originally grew from when one of those inmates, a guy named uh, Donald DeFries, escaped from prison and showed up in San Francisco and said, let's get this thing started. Yeah, he was uh, – they all adopted different names when they joined the SLA. His name was General Field Marshal Sink uh, – is it Matume? Matume, and it might be Cinque. Oh, really? Yeah, because they were super into Che Guevara and the Cuban Revolution. So anything that looks even remotely Spanish is probably pronounced like that. Okay. Well, I don't know Spanish, so I'm going to pronounce it like Spike Lee style. Okay. Uh, I think that's his sister's name. Is it? So, yeah, Sink Lee. I didn't know that. C-I-N-Q-U-E, one of his sisters. I got you. It's great. So, um, yeah, he was in prison for – well, he did a bunch of stuff – he was well known to possess homemade bombs. He was arrested for kidnapping, mm-hmm. um, possession of explosives. Uh, he was arrested for robbing a bank, and that's finally in 1969 uh, what finally got him into prison. Mm-hmm. But and this pops up sort of throughout the story. But it was it was way easier to get away with crime back then. Yeah, like to escape from prison and then just say like I'm gonna go live in San Francisco and start a radical organization right and and kind of not get caught right uh, and that's what he did and he ended up engineering the murder of a man named Marcus Foster he was superintendent of the Oakland school system mm-hmm. and uh, he didn't actually carry out the murder but two SLA members shot him yeah uh, and one one of their signature moves it would turn out to be uh, cyanide tipped bullets which <laughs> I didn't look into that. I don't even know if that's a thing. I no, like if, I th- if that helps, yeah. you know, kill somebody. I think it's overkill is what like literal overkill. Or maybe just they thought it sounded intimidating or something to put in letters. I think so. They, they definitely did that, but they shot Foster to draw attention to um something they saw which was anti-black schooling policies. Uh, Foster was a black man, one of the cruel ironies there. Well, not only that, he was also a respected black community organizer. And when they killed him, everybody else on the left in Berkeley was like, what are you doing? Are you guys morons? And the SLA was like, oh, mm -hmm." (laughs) yeah, they were kind of morons. Yeah. 
Yes, they were. A little bit morons as far as domestic terrorist groups go. Um, so when they, uh, the shooters were actually in prison when they got Patty Hearst, and the first thought from the cops and the feds was, here's what's going to happen is they've kidnapped this rich girl, and they're going to try to exchange um, giving her back uh, to get these two guys out of prison. Right. But they're like, no, not exactly. We're actually going to keep her. No, but even before they, they had a chance to ask, and I guess they never did bring it up, Ronald Reagan, who was governor at the time, said, no, we're not doing that. Uh, but they didn't go that way. Instead, they said, um, hey, Willie Hurst. Um, no, sorry, Randy Hurst. Willie Randy. Hurst was, was dead by this time. Randy Hurst, um, you're super rich. We want you to take some of those riches, and we want you to feed the poor with it. That was their first demand. Um, and they, they, came, they, they sent this demand. First of all, they sent a communique to a radio station in San Francisco. Um, and I think that's who they basically corresponded with the public and the police through um, was this radio station. Um, and they would send letters and they would eventually send like voice recordings as well. Um, but in this first one, they sent what was basically an arrest warrant for yeah. Patty Hearst uh, Patricia Campbell Hurst, daughter of Randolph A. Hurst, corporate enemy of the people, and they sent her credit card as, as proof that they had her, um, which, if you ask me, shows their hand right off the bat. They didn't send a finger. They didn't even send, like, a lock of hair. They sent a credit card that you could pick up off the ground. They could have just taken it off of her out, out, yeah. off of her nightstand. They didn't send yeah, didn't anything vicious. They, they just sent a credit card to prove that they had her. Um, but they didn't make any ransom demand. Then six days later, after that first communique with, with the uh, arrest warrant, that's when they said the Hearst need to figure out how to, how to feed any single person in California that can pr- prove that they are not— um, beneficiaries of the corporate capitalist state um, with at least $70 worth of high-quality food per person. Yeah, and they were like, you know, we're going to get it together. Not we, but you need to arrange it through the grocery stores Mm -hmm. in California to distribute this stuff. Uh, They included an an audio tape from Patty where she says, Mom, Dad, I'm okay. I'm with a combat unit with automatic weapons, and these people aren't just a bunch of nuts or morons like Josh and Chuck will say in the future. Right. I want to get out of here, but the only way I'm going to do it is if we do it their way. And I just hope that you'll do what they say, Dad, uh, and do it quickly. Mm-hmm. And Randy Hurst got this, and he was like, these people are morons. How do they expect me to give everyone in California that proves they're in need $70 worth of high-quality food? What is high-quality food anyway? Mm-hmm. And they're like, that's what you eat every day, sir. <laughs> He's and like, he oh, said, that's actually pretty good. <laughs> okay, I, I got gotcha. you. And so he said, um, you know, I don't even think I can pull this off, which followed another back and forth in which Patty said, hey, stop acting like I'm dead. Um, he needs a, a good faith gesture from you. Mm-hmm. And so just a few days after that, the Hearst Foundation formed, uh, I guess they looked in probably the best way to get a, a tax benefit out of this informed an actual program called People in Need, which would feed 100,000 people for a year uh, $2 million worth of food, which sounds fairly high quality to me. Um, yeah, and and uh, apparently they had a, a rough start at first because they didn't know what they were doing. There were food riots at the uh, distribution site, and they finally managed to get it figured out. So in that sense, and it's kind of overlooked, I think, in a lot of histories because everything they did after that was just so stupid and, and terrible. Um 
But the SLA had a, a, a genuine impact right out of the gate that they used their, their hostage for, which was to feed poor and hungry people. So clearly they were at least partially dedicated to that. And um, uh, Cinque Matume, is it Matume? Donald DeFries, <laughs> the uh, field marshal, general field marshal, um, he, he had said in a statement, he said, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Hurst, I, I, will, I have no qualms about executing your daughter uh, if it will save the lives of any starving poor people. So that was like a real big initial thing. So Yeah, I was kind of surprised that they formed this program, People in Need, which obviously was going to take a lot of work to make into sort of a legit charity. Mm-hmm. And they were like, just for one year, though, <laughs> like after that. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised they didn't say, well, you know, maybe this is worthwhile. I mean, I didn't get the impression they were those types. Well, and they probably it, it probably wasn't a great look to be inspired by these uh, these terrorists. That's know? true. That's true, too. Um, but. That, I just find it significant that that was like that. That was their first demand was that, and then they, they, it actually had a, a real effect. But yeah, they um, asked for more money though. I think they said two million's not enough. Right. We want eight million total. Yeah. And the Hearst said, Randy said, "No go. You got to release Patty Hearst if you want that extra six mil." Yeah. So they, um, this I think is another kind of overlooked thing that that when you look at what. You know, the process of of changing her mind that Patty Hearst eventually is said to have gone through. I think that this is really where the seed started because she said later on that she felt like her parents were trying to, they were debating how much I was worth. Yeah. And they were focusing on dollars and cents, um, you know, in the balance of her daughter's life. And she, you know, like she had said before, stop acting like I'm dead. She apparently felt very... um, if not left behind, definitely gambled with, her life was gambled with by her parents who were basically publicly negotiating the, the, the cost down for the release of their daughter. And I think that that really may have set up a 19-year-old um, to, to be more open to whatever the opposite of their parents' thought processes and ideology might be. Yeah, there's another um, really good movie about the J. Paul Getty kidnapping called All the Money in the World, mm-hmm. uh, directed by Ridley Scott. And that's sort of one of the uh, threads in that movie is, you know, <laughs> is the granddad trying to, like, negotiate down this money. Like, somebody that's, like, one of the richest human beings on the planet trying to bargain with the life of, of a family member. Mm-hmm. Like, no genie, no money. Yeah. <laughs> really, really interesting. Yeah. Um, nice Fargo ref, by the way. Thank you. Uh, should we take a break? Yeah, sure. Why not? All right. We'll take a break, and we're going to come back right for this and talk about what happens on April 3rd. So, Chuck, you mentioned April 3rd, and here is about the time when things really start to turn as far as the public's perception of what exactly is going on. Because 59 days earlier, 
Um, Patty Hearst, poor little Patty Hearst, never harmed a flea, just, you know, wanted to study art history and be super amazingly rich, um, was abducted from her house and then forced into the public spotlight as a, a hostage who was used to negotiate um, f- between the SLA and uh, the, her parents, the Hearsts. Um, but then that changed on April 3rd. Yeah, she sent a another tape that said, I have been given the choice of one, being released in a safe area, mm-hmm. or two, joining forces uh, joining the forces of the Symbionese Liberation Army and fighting right. for my freedom and the freedom of all oppressed people. I have chosen to stay and fight. And then she revealed that she had taken on an SLA name, uh, Tania, or is it Tania? <laughs> I think, I don't know. Let's go with Tania. Okay, Tania, T-A-N-I-A. Mm-hmm. And they sent uh, a little visual aid too. And this was, uh, this became... A very, very famous picture. One of the most famous pictures of the 1970s uh, was this photo, this Polaroid of Patty. Uh, We've all seen it, holding that machine gun, wearing the beret Mm -hmm. in front of the SLA flag uh, in their emblem, which was a seven-headed cobra. Mm -hmm. Very famous picture. Extremely famous. And that beret was um, significant in that she adopted the nom de guerre Tanya um, from another woman who adopted the nom de guerre of Tanya um, back in the 60s, about a decade earlier, when she was fighting alongside Che Guevara in Bolivia. Her name was uh, Tamara Bunque, I believe. Um, she was Argentinian, uh, and she was a revolutionary. And I guess Petty Hearst uh, admired her and adopted that name. But imagine, like, put it yourself in the in the in the position of just the average public who, you know, person in the public who's following this story, it's like poor little Patty Hearst, poor little, little Patty Hearst. And then, oh, my God, wh- what is this? <laughs> There's a picture of Patty Hearst looking like a total B.A. holding a machine gun and a beret. Yeah, a total B.A. Baracus. Yeah, and she said, I, I, they said that they would let me go and I could go free or I could stay and fight. And I'm choosing to fight. And not only that, I have a new name of war. Yeah, I think... This started a lot of confusion. I don't think it was immediately everyone was like, oh, my God, uh, the future Paris Hilton of our times is now <laughs> radicalized and wants to kill people. That's true. I think it I think it just really confused a lot of people that were like, wait a minute, what's going on here? Yeah. I thought she was kidnapped, and now she says she's not. And uh, it really gripped the nation. I mean, obviously, I was just a, a wee toddler when this is going on, but mm-hmm. I remember when I was – a little kid, this sort of still reverberating in the public sphere a little mm-hmm. bit. Like, I remember hearing the name Patty Hearst mm-hmm. when I was like six or seven. Well, she also, I mean, she came out with her memoirs, you know, in uh, about when you were probably 10. So I'm sure that that really brought her to your attention as well. Well, too. sure. That was, we read that in uh, whatever, fifth grade. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, you're right. You're right. That wasn't the necessarily the turning point because a picture like that, you know, if you're somebody's hostage, your captors can dress you up however they want and take a picture of you and put it, put it out there. There was It was still shocking, but it was confusing, like you said, too. And then people generally knew, like, if you if somebody had a gun to your head, you could say, like, yeah, I'm going to stay and fight, and here's my new name. The turning point, the real turning point that came about, Two weeks after that, almost two weeks after that. And that is when Tanya made her real-world debut. And at this point, there was there was very little um, question about whether she was actually involved in the SLA or just a hostage in a lot of people's mind. This is where that turning point came. 
Yeah, so um, the Hibernia Bank in San Francisco was robbed by the SLA, uh, including Tanya, and they shot two people. Um, like we said earlier, you know, it wasn't one of these things where they were just espousing radicalism and uh, threatening violence. Mm-hmm. They they killed people. Um, they didn't kill these two people, but they did shoot them. Um, they made off with about ten grand to help fund their group. Uh, on the surveillance uh, surveillance footage, you see Patty right there pointing an assault rifle machine gun and screaming at people to get down on the floor, mm-hmm. um, announcing her, I am Tanya. And the footage played on the news. And this is when, like you said, everyone was like, man, this is getting really, really interesting. Uh, I think the FBI wasn't fully convinced she still wasn't being um, forced to do this, though, because it's not like they didn't uh, in, in, they didn't issue an, a warrant for her arrest for robbing a bank. Right. She was wanted as a material witness at this point still. Yeah, still. I mean, don't forget, she's white and she's rich. So, you know, yeah. you can't just go around saying that she's a bank robber just because she robbed a bank in plain view of everybody on um, security footage that's on TV, you know. So she's a material witness. Another tape comes along. And this time she called her family the Pighursts. And she said, I mean, this is sort of the idea. It's like, has she been brainwashed or not? And she said in no uncertain terms, as for being brainwashed, the idea is ridiculous beyond belief. I am a soldier in the People's Army. Um, See, this is one of those things where people are like, if you uh, had a time machine, what's something you would do? I would go back to the beginning of 1975 so that I could watch this the whole thing unfold in real time, like on the nightly news and in the newspaper, it must have just been totally mind-blowing because everything yeah. I have ever known about Patty Hearst was all in retrospect, and I knew the whole story from beginning to end all at once. To watch this unfold must have just been just nuts, you know? So you wouldn't go back and kill Hitler in his cradle. Fine, no, whatever, no, that's no. fine. No, I just want to <laughs> just see what happens with Patty Hearst. <laughs> yeah, I want to sit on a couch in 1975. 74. Well, I'd be at Woodstock, so what can I say? Okay. We could kill Hitler, too. That's fine. All right. We can can, we, do, can we do that first and then go watch the Patty Hearst thing and go to Woodstock? Well, I think the order of operation is we kill Hitler, we go to Woodstock together, uh-huh. uh, we avoid the purple acid. It's brown acid. Brown acid. Mm-hmm. And then we uh, we wind up in 1975 eating TV dinners, watching this on TV. Okay. That sounds pretty nice, actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's it does, do it. Doesn't it? Um, so, so... Patty Hearst, just to recap, has said that she is a member of the SLA by choice, that she has a new war name, that she uh, is not brainwashed, and now she's been out in public on foot, on video, caught on camera, sh- holding a machine gun during a bank robbery, shouting at people to get on the floor. And witnesses are saying, like, she shouted, I am Tanya. And uh, apparently on her way out of the bank, she dropped the clip out of her submachine gun, an M1, M1 carbine uh, submachine gun, like an assault rifle. Um, and the clip dropped out, and it fell to the floor, and, and two bullets um, were knocked out of the clip. She stopped and picked them up, put them back in the clip, and then jammed the clip back in her machine gun and strutted out the door. Like, from from witnesses' accounts, like, she sounds like she was not some meek, timid thing who was taking orders, that she seemed to be like a a warrior princess. Yeah, and you got to go back in time to uh, 1975 uh, and 74 when, you know, we did a great episode on brainwashing. I encourage you to go back and listen to that. But um, briefly, we should just say that in 1974, Stockholm Syndrome and brainwashing, this stuff wasn't as 
part of the, you know, just regular conversation like it is today. No, the, um, the bank heist from stock, that created the Stockholm Syndrome idea had just taken place like a year or less before this. Yeah, so if you if someone would have said Stockholm Syndrome on the news, <laughs> like, um, yeah, people might not have known what they were talking about it. So it it would have been not out of the realm for people to not even understand that someone could be brainwashed like this, as far as just, you know, an average American goes. Yeah, but at the same time, I mean, there there had been a real, um, a, a real newsworthy and, like, celebrated case of POWs taken in the Korean War, you know, 20 years before this, that had said, you know, they signed confessions that they'd engaged in germ warfare when they hadn't. Um, there was evidence that they colluded with the enemy. Um, some of them, 21 Air Force officers that had been captured, refused to return home when they had the ability to be returned home. And so the idea of brainwashing was out there, but it was still very, it was nothing like our conception of it now. And it was still very much in the beginnings of being studied and, and understood. Yeah. So 1974, May 16th is when things really, really change. Mm -hmm. And this was the incident, I don't know if you were referring to, but this is the one, one of them. that really made me go, okay, <laughs> I'm really not so sure about this um, being brainwashed or trying to just save our own bacon thing. All right. Uh, they were, it was Patty and then Bill and Emily Harris, a couple of other SLA members, um, went to, uh, Bill and Emily went to a sporting goods store for some supplies. Mm -hmm. Bill shoplifted bullets, uh, got caught, and then tried to bolt out of there, and an employee tackled him as he was leaving. Uh, they got Emily and captured her, mm -hmm. and then Patty's across the street sort of waiting in the getaway car. She jumps out. She points that submachine gun at the store and empties the clip, and then gets another rifle and keeps shooting. She <laughs> fires about 30 shots total on a public street into a store. By the grace of God, didn't hit anybody, which is just, it. yeah, I mean, that's the most remarkable part of this whole thing. Yeah. Uh, and the Harrises got out of there. I mean, it worked. They got out of there, jumped in the van, and they all got away. And this is the point, and this is the one that would really haunt her in court later on, which we'll get to. Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's like, it's really hard to believe. I mean, she could have left. She was out there by herself. Yeah. Um, she could have, once the, the S went down, she could have left. Yeah. But no, she jumped out and she just, she fired 30 shots yeah, trying she, to help them get out of there. She was left alone in the van with the keys reading a newspaper while they were there. And, and like, you don't even have to be a hostage. You could just be a, an accomplice. And there's a good chance that if somebody's getting busted inside, you might just drive off and save your own bacon. Um, like you said, it's just such a great term. <laughs> um, but, yeah, she did the opposite. She went and fought to free her comrades. So that, yes, that's definitely one of the things that I I and basically anybody else familiar with the case points to is like, this makes basically everything else questionable. Yeah, this is just not nice. <laughs> so here's the thing. Um, that was, I think, May 16th, you said? Yeah. Um, so Patty's been kidnapped for, you know, just a few months from February 4th to May 16th. Um, and she's already engaged in a bank robbery and shot up an, a Los Angeles street uh, and storefront. Um, and just the very next day, like the SLA is all over the news. Like the cops are looking for them. They started out in Berkeley and they moved their way down to LA at some point. But they are, again, moronic 
uh, in a lot of their actions and a lot of their um, judgment is just really insensible. But one of the things they did was they, I guess, identified somebody's house in Compton. I don't know if somebody knew them or not, or if it just looked like a good place to to hide out in South Central Los Angeles. And they said, hey, you, um, can we give you $100? I think this is just some middle-aged woman who is running a house. If we give you $100, can we all stay here? And she said, okay. And they said, great, let's go get all of our guns, like like several dozen guns, 6,000 rounds of ammunition, a few bombs, and move them in. And that lady started to get freaked out. And apparently her daughter said, went and flagged down a traffic cop and said, hey, are you looking for a bunch of white people who have a bunch of guns that seem to be hiding out? And that led to this convergence of the LAPD on this house in, in Compton and a, a firefight, a shootout with most of the members of the SLA in this house. Yeah, so there is a firefight that goes down. Mm-hmm. Um, they uh, lob some tear gas in there. That starts a fire, mm-hmm. and it burns the house to the ground and kills all six of the SLA members inside. Right. Um, Patty and the Harrises are not there. They were on the lam at this point, uh, waiting it out in a hotel room after the shoplifting thing. And then three weeks after this, uh, the the few remaining, I mean, you got to think, if they killed six, uh, there were another three hiding out, and there were never more than 12. There could only be just a few more right. uh, remaining. But the remaining members released another message that uh, Patty had a real hard time with at the trial, um, explaining it away, because she uh, it was clearly upset about these deaths. She talked about the fascist pig media mm. and her brothers and sisters dying. And then talked about member Willie Wolf in particular as the gentlest, most beautiful man I've ever known and said that neither she nor Wolf had ever loved an individual the way we loved each other. I read a, a um, interview with Willie Wolf's father, who was a doctor back east. Willie Wolf was just raised this like upper middle class son of a doctor, you know, pretty privileged, but also not um, spoiled, bratty, that kind of thing. Uh, loved the outdoors. And he um, apparently just his father still was just like, I, I don't, I don't get it at all. Like that guy, he really was just super gentle and sweet and kind and not very political, but something happened to him out in Berkeley and, and he became extremely concerned. I think a natural propensity toward caring about what happened to other people became radicalized by the, uh, in the, you know, by the SLA. He was a founding member of the SLA. It's not like he was some lamb led to the slaughter. Like, he was right. one of the guys who founded the SLA with um, Donald DeFries and uh, I think the, um, the the couple that were shoplifting the Harrises. Um, yeah. But his father really, really struggled to explain it. But what was remarkable to me about the interview is his father wasn't like over-explaining. It wasn't like a me thinks he, he doth protest too much kind of thing. Like he just seemed genuinely baffled and like he just didn't understand it. And yeah. I, I was reading an article um, in the L.A. Times on, like, the 20th anniversary of that that shootout uh, in Compton. Um, and the the owner of the house that had been burned down that the SLA was in, uh, he said that every year Willie Wolf's mother would come in, uh, on the anniversary of, the, of her son's death and leave this wreath um, on a palm tree at the, the vacant lot where the burned-out house had been and would just stand there in silence for hours, just once That's a year. And she, he said she was the only person who ever came. Wow. Yeah. Very sad. Uh, and I'm sure, yeah, the parents of these kids were just, yeah, they were like, it's sort of like being the um, 
parents of like one of the Manson family or something. Right. Yeah. And here's the other thing, too. Like, this is a really complicated thing. Like, Donald DeFries, he was an escaped convict from prison. But I also read that his stepfather, on three different occasions, broke both of his arms um, to punish him. So, I mean, like, there's there. there, And then um, Willie Wolf. Uh, it was accused of raping Patty Hearst, too. So just how gentle and sweet could he be? Like, it's it's a really murky, messy case, and appropriately yeah. so, because even still today, we're, you know, in 2020, we're, we're trying to suss out exactly what happened with Patty Hearst in her mind back totally. in 1974. Yeah, it's really, I mean, it's hard to figure out. Um, and I think that's what makes this such an enduring case, you know? Yeah. So the uh, that eulogy tape was released uh, while she was on the run <clears throat> with the Harrises, and they stayed on the run, driving across the country, sort of uh, Badland style. I don't think they were killing people; that they were committing crimes, they were stealing stuff, and they did this for eighteen months, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is another example of like it was just a lot easier to get away with crimes back then before. Uh, there were cameras everywhere and obviously camera phones everywhere mm-hmm. and the internet. Uh, they they remained on the lam for 18 months. Uh, about a year into that, they robbed another bank in San Francisco and actually killed a customer yeah. in the process. Myrna Opsall. Um, yeah, and, and, you know, this would come up later at the trial. Patty Hearst was not the trigger person, but she was involved. She was one of the three, and a person lost their life. You know, it's very sad. Yeah. Um, she was apparently a church lady who was there depositing like that week's collection into the bank, the church's bank account. And she was in the wrong place at the wrong time and apparently um, made a, a fast move because she was freaked out and got shot and, and died pretty quickly from what I understand. All right. Should we take another break? Yeah, sure. All right. This is our last break. And then we'll talk about uh, the arrest and the trial of Patty Hearst right after this. So she gets arrested, um, and, you know, this is where things get really weird because you've got two stories playing out in court. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is that uh, I'm, I'm Patty Hearst, and I was brainwashed. I was kept in a closet for 57 days when they abducted me. I was mm-hmm. blindfolded and bound. I was raped by Donald DeFries and Willie Wolf. Mm-hmm. I was uh, abused and lectured about how righteous they were. And then after 57 days, uh, I was told, hey, you can either join up with us or we can kill you. And she said, I joined up. So story number one is that. Story number two is the other. Yeah, story number two is we have video evidence of you robbing a bank. Witnesses say that you were involved in another bank robbery or a woman was killed. We have you on tape talking about how you're not brainwashed and how you joined this by your own free will and your parents are pigs. So it was it was a, a pretty airtight case as far as the prosecution goes, were it not for one thing. And that is that she was initially kidnapped. She didn't run off and do this. Like she didn't get bored and like go to a community center and end up falling in with the SLA. Like she was kidnapped. And our understanding of... Um, of psychology was still 
kind of gelling around the idea of brainwashing, but it wasn't just completely unheard of. The thing is, it had never been tried in a criminal case before. Um, and the Hearst hired the very famous, I think already he was a very famous attorney, F. Lee Bailey, um, who defended the Boston Strangler. He was also on OJ's team. Um, he was just a super famous lawyer. Um, and he tried it. I, and I think, in retrospect, that's the only thing he possibly could have tried was to say she was brainwashed, like you said. Yeah, and they had psychiatrists that came in to back that up and say this is very possible that brought up the stuff about the P, uh, POWs. Mm-hmm. Um, they had multiple psychiatrists come in and kind of take their side. And then as far as the tapes go, Patty said, you know what, those were scripted. And I had no choice. I had to read them as they said. And if you think they're believable, it's because uh, I believe that my life depended on how well of a job I did reading these things. Right. Uh, and that those tapes were, I mean, that was the big, big evidence in, in the trial was how passionate she was and how she talked about her love of Willie Wolf and, you know, other psych- psychiatrists for the prosecution came in and they were like, you know what, I've listened to these things over and over and I don't know an actress on earth who could pull this off. Like she was, if she was reading scripted stuff, it surely doesn't sound that way to me. Right. And she also did not, she literally did not help her case. Um, when she was arrested, she put down as her occupation, urban gorilla. Um, she was, you know, um, she was like, uh, uh, throw in like, uh, fight the power fists. Anytime somebody took a picture of her, um, she was very much like not, the, oh, my God, I'm glad to be freed kind of thing that you would expect and I think that the public wanted to see. And then also when she took the stand, um, I can't believe— I can't believe she did that. <laughs> I cannot believe it either. Um, but she took the stand on cross-examination. She pled the fifth 42 times. Yeah, Which, I mean, the, yeah, the public does not really trust people who plead the fifth, especially 42 times, especially if they're supposed to be a kidnap victim. So— there's a there's a there was a lot that the prosecution had going for them in that sense, and then the the defense just basically had brainwashed. She's brainwashed. One of the things they said was like she was raped. She was raped by these men. So um, of course, like she feared them. Uh, they threatened her life. Of course, she feared them. And apparently, I guess the prosecution got her to say that no, she didn't love Willie Wolf. By the way, she never saw Stephen Weed again, as far as I could tell. She didn't want to see him. She didn't get back together with him. Um, and I, I don't think they ever saw each other again, even oh, though he was, you know, speaking to the press the whole time and being very supportive. Uh, but she was like, no, nah, I'm, I'm moving on. Um, but the prosecution got her to say, uh, you know, you said you love Willie Wolf. Did you love him? And she said, no, I hated him. And then they produced this thing that is another, I think, another uh, mark that that really stands against her in the mind of a lot of people, which is little statue that she had gotten from Willie Wolf, right? Yeah, they they pull this out and they're like, then what is this? Yeah. Is this not, in fact, a gift from your supposed captor and supposed rapist Willie Wolf? Why would you keep this gift still? And her reply was the opposite of my famous saying. She said, I like art. Yeah. Instead of I hate art. Yeah. And uh, she said, you know, I'm an art history student and I like art. And, you know, if you're trying to move the needle for a jury – 
that's that's not the way to do it. Well, one of the women jurors um, on the case said, like, no woman would carry around a love trinket from a man who raped her, and that that really ruined her credibility. Um, at the same time, though, Jeffrey Tubin, uh, who wrote a book on this, um, American Heiress, yes, but he still had a legitimate book, despite what he's done <laughs> since then. Um, I know. I just it's hard not to. I know. I know. I know. Um, he he made a really good point though that I think is worth repeating here, and that is that regardless of um, you know maybe how she ended up feeling about Willie Wolf or anybody that that were her captors, she was kept in a closet for fifty seven days, and anyone who had sex with her in that closet raped her. That there's no chance for that to have been consensual, no matter how she behaved during that was. That was rape. And then she was raped, and that should be, you know, it shouldn't be brushed aside no matter, you know, how she came to feel about Willie Wolf. And I, I think that's that's definitely a, a good point to, to remember. Yeah, I mean, if that entire story is, is true about being kept in the closet and, you know, it, most of this testimony comes from her, mm-hmm. uh, and there are still people that think she cooked up this entire thing, Um. And you know what? She just wanted to get out of her engagement to Steve Weed to begin with, and that's why oh, she that's, orchestrated that's it. That's <laughs> such a conspiracy theory. Are people saying that? I'm sure they are, but really no. you came— Oh, okay. No, I was literally making a joke. If you see, anyone. if you see though, like footage of Steve Weed, he's the kind that somebody would do that to get out of a relationship <laughs> with them. I'm Stage sorry. of kidnapping? I'm sorry, Stephen Weed. Shoot, yeah, shoot I'm sure you're super nice, store. but yeah, just to just to get out of a, an of engagement just with off the Stephen engagement. Weed. Yeah. <laughs> Because he I've seems like idea. such a nice guy. It'll only take a few years. Right. <laughs> One person has to die. I'm sorry, but. Oh, boy. So um, she, on March 20th, 1976, 22 years old, by the way. I don't think that has really, you know, may have hit home to our listeners. She's right. still just a kid. Yeah. Uh, she was sentenced to seven years in prison for robbing that bank. Uh, she served 22 months of that uh, near San Francisco at Pleasanton Prison. And you mentioned Jimmy Carter earlier, and we put a pin in that, and I'm sure people are like, what does Jimmy Carter have to do with any of this? <laughs> yeah. He commuted her sentence. It was very controversial at the time. He said that he um, he fully believed her, uh, that she was a victim and would not have done any of this uh, had she not been brainwashed and, and kidnapped and brainwashed. And they said, what about Stevie Weed? And he was like, I don't know who that is. Uh-huh. And uh, he was just a big supporter of her, and he eventually – um, actually helped persuade Bill Clinton to pardon her in 2001. He did. Um, he granted her, he commuted her sentence, so she was let, let out after 22 months, but it was Clinton who pardoned her. And I said earlier that, you know, Carter, I think, had the most sensible opinion of the whole thing, and it was simply that had she not been kidnapped um, by the SLA and forced into these, you know, a life of crime, basically— she otherwise would never have engaged in any of those criminal acts. Like she was, her life was not in any way, shape, or form on a trajectory to robbing banks. She was just going to end up being kind of a a a, a, a art history, a rich art history person. Yeah, she's going to collect and buy expensive art, probably. But yeah, basically, which you know, like that was going to be her contribution to the world: have some kids and and um, be very very wealthy. She was not going to go rob banks, and the SLA forced her to do that, or forced her into that life, even if they didn't force her to rob banks. The thing is, though, is that still leaves dangling. There's a big blank space after that sentence, and that is, but she still robbed the banks. 
Yeah. And it does seem like she did it from her own volition. And I mean, anybody who was 19 can imagine what it must have been like to be a 19 or, or early 20-year-old shooting up a storefront to free a couple <laughs> of friends. Uh, you know, as reckless, as dangerous, as murderous, as unjustifiable and indefensible as that is, it also must have been probably the most thrilling moment of Patty Hearst's entire life to this day. Well, of course it was, because shockingly, she led a pretty low-key life for many, many years after this. Mm -hmm. uh, she got out of prison. She married a former cop. Uh, his name was Bernard Shaw, not the composer, but um, <laughs> he was her bodyguard. He was moonlighting while she was out on bail as a bodyguard. Yeah. Had a couple of kids, raised their kids in Connecticut, and lived a really quiet life uh, until 1981. A couple of years after that, she published her memoir, like you said, mm -hmm. which we read in our, our, our fifth grade reading class. Mrs. Shaw. Every Secret class. Thing. <laughs> and um, then she kind of was very public, but not uh, – she was public in the way that uh, – I'm not saying she should have shame, but shamelessly public, going on TV shows, plugging her book talking about her memoirs, talking about what happened, buddying up with maybe the weirdest thing in this whole story, buddying up with John Waters and starring in four of his movies. Including but, Cry Baby. Yeah, I mean, she she was in a bunch of them. She was uh, in Serial Mom. Yeah, I remember when I saw her in these movies thinking, is that Patty Hearst, Patty Hearst? <laughs> right. And it totally was. I, you know, I think this was before the internet when I saw these. And um, so, like, I read a newspaper article or something confirming that. <laughs> right. And I was like, all right, I guess that's what she's doing now. Were you in a van waiting for your accomplices while you read that newspaper article? <laughs> no, it was a very strange time, though. Um, and then there were a couple of more cases in the late 90s. Uh, the FBI captured this woman. She was a SLA fugitive uh, named Kathleen Solia. Mm -hmm. uh, she was living, she managed to get out and live a very quiet life as Sarah Jane Olson. She's basically also, like Homer Simpson's mom. <laughs> yeah. Also a wife and mother in Connecticut. And she was arrested for uh, a car bombing carried out in 75. Um, actually, I think the weirdest part of the story is is that she, her daughter ended up being a contestant on American Idol. <laughs> is that right? Yeah. That's a little weird. I don't know if that's starring in John Waters' movies level weird, but it's definitely, that's a great little lanyard. Yeah. It's a nice little tidbit. Her daughters, though, when they were questioned about this, were like, you know, this was Berkeley in the 70s. Like, it was kind of not Everybody a big deal. Everybody was blowing like, stuff up. They were that was kind of their attitude. It was interesting. <laughs> it is interesting. Um, I've got a little detail I turned up that I hadn't seen anywhere else, but it was from the recollections of an the one of the FBI agents who arrested uh, Patty Hearst finally. And they said, get this, man. She was um on the run with a, another SLA member, Wendy Yoshimura. And when the agents came up these back stairs to this house where she and Wendy were hiding out, they were sitting at the kitchen table, and the agents came in with their guns drawn, and Wendy Yoshimura had both hands on the table and did everything those FBI agents said. Patty Hearst jumped up and ran to the front room, and apparently the FBI agents said, you know, get back here, we're going to shoot Wendy or something like that. They, they said that they couldn't guarantee Wendy's safety unless— um, Patty came back. So Patty reluctantly came back into the kitchen where she was arrested. But when they went back and searched the house, in the front room, they found her M1 carbine and a 12-gauge shotgun. Wow. Which 
really, it's very difficult not to imagine that she was jumping up to go get her gun to engage in a gun battle. Interesting. That's nuts, man. Wow. Well, Salia gets uh, found out as Sarah Jane Olsen, like I said, that trial and then another <laughs> one. Uh, remember that bank robbery that we mentioned earlier when they were on the lamb? Uh-huh. Uh, that comes back to haunt her as well. And there are these two kind of trials popping up where she has immunity uh, if she's going to come in and testify and say who the shooter was. She was going to say it was Emily Harris. She was all prepared to testify against them. And they both, uh, everyone ended up pleading guilty. And so she didn't have to go to court again. Mm-hmm. And she kind of just went back to her her life as as Patty Hearst, the, the mom. In Connecticut. That's right. Very interesting story. And like we said, we look back now and... I don't think anyone has the clearest picture still of exactly what happened. No. My, my guess is it might have been a little bit of both. Yeah, I think there was an initial brainwashing hostage thing. But, um, you know, William Harris later said, we inadvertently kidnapped a revolutionary freak. Like, she was just, right. she She's had ready. a real propensity <laughs> for it. Yeah, and the, yeah, they were still, they were astounded by how how eagerly she took it on. So Well, and this is coming, you know, you got to remember, too, this is a, 19-year-old coming off the heels of being a a middle schooler in the late 60s when all of that's going on. Right. And, you know, so she, that was in the, the public sphere as in her whole life growing up, really, this radical revolutionary kind of thing growing up in Northern California mm-hmm. near San Francisco. So, yes, she may have been like, hey, this is my chance. Yeah. <laughs> and she took it. Uh, well, that's Patty Hearst, everybody. Uh, if you want to know more about it, there's a lot of ink that's been spilled on her story. And uh, just go down that rabbit hole as deep as you like. Uh, and since I said that, it's time for Listener Mail. I'm curious to read her, or I guess reread her memoir. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I don't remember. It's been years, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's been many years. <laughs> uh, let me see here. I'm going to call this Bavarian Beavers. Uh, hey, guys, want to take the opportunity to talk about your recent show on Beavers uh, to tell you what I have been doing for a few years now. Um, between finishing school and starting university, I did nine months of civil service in my regional environmental authority. My main focus, besides cleaning up local forests, was taking care of beavers. Uh, I basically had to maintain live traps and had to perform sabotage on dams of beavers, which flooded fields of local farmers. Ooh. Uh, I did so on a daily basis since overnight the dams were, of course, restored by their respective constructors. Mm -hmm. Uh, This was done in order to softly, softly force the beavers to find a new place to live, uh, which mostly worked after a few months. Uh, Also, two beavers were caught alive during my period of service and were moved to the UK, as far as I know, in order to reintroduce them there. (laughs) As far as I know, they went to go live on a farm in England. Uh, I learned a lot about these animals during this time, and I was stoked when I saw this episode title pop up. As usual, you did a great job gathering and summarizing all the facts and interesting good-to-knows, including the weird classification as fish for religious reasons. Uh, Keep up the great work. This is from uh, Bavaria, Germany, and that is from Nico. Thanks, Nico. And Nico says, uh, Chuck, hats off to you and your German skills. So Nico's being very kind. Yeah, what about me, Nico? What about Josh? <laughs> well, you, you own Japanese and Spanish. All right. But Nico didn't say anything about it. No, she did. That was the PSS. Okay, good. There you go. 
So uh, thanks a lot, Nico, for complimenting both of us. Uh, I appreciate you finally getting to it. And if you want to be like Nico and compliment both of us, we love that kind of thing. You can send us an email to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.